racing around. Drops! Think about Loa trying to make up for it. Fires to the end zone. Touchdown! Alabama wins! The Crimson Tide will not be denied. Welcome back in to Second and 26, your dedicated Alabama podcast here on The Athletic. Uh, first game in the books, Alabama. Heading on over to Atlanta to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and rolling out with a 42-3 victory over Duke. A little bit of a slow start for Alabama, but they got it going. Uh, as always, John Hayes will join us at some point during the podcast. Uh, I know he's got some thoughts on the SEC's opening weekend, but let's uh, let's dig right into it. Alabama, again, wins 42-3 to over Duke. Um, pretty much a, a victory. Everyone kind of, I guess the best way to say it is uh, they yawned their way through it. It wasn't all that exciting. A scoreless first quarter for Alabama. They have an 11-point lead at half, 14-3. to And the college football world is freaking out. I mean, I, I literally get a an alert push notification from ESPN that Alabama is struggling with Duke, a double-digit lead at halftime against a Power 5 opponent, and people are freaking out because that's what Alabama football has come to be. That's what people expect from Tua Tagovailoa in this offense is that they you plug them in, and there's no they don't need any time to charge up. They just hit the ground running. Well, that's not exactly what happened in Atlanta, and we'll go through that. Um, I guess the main – Issues on today's podcast I want to tackle is uh, how Tua Tungvaloa looked in that new offense, the Steve Sarkeesian offense, how the freshman linebackers played. And uh, to a, to some extent, I want to get on the offensive line. There's been a lot of chatter about that offensive line and their uh, ability or lack thereof to run the football consistently against Duke. Um, now, as I mentioned, John Hayes will join us. Later in the podcast, to talk about SEC's opening weekend, and then I'm going to hit some random things here and there. Uh, Jalen Hurts, maybe uh, my TV setup. Uh, Skip Bayless had some knowledge that he dropped, but let's let's dig right into it. Tua Tonga-Valoa didn't start the game off real well, uh, and I don't think it was particularly his fault. Alabama, the first couple of drives didn't play all that well, and um, the first couple of drives resulted in Alabama basically punting, and then the second time they got the ball, Jerome Ford uh, fumbled, and and that ended basically their chances there in the first quarter. They got it going in the second quarter, scored a couple touchdowns, but 14 points at halftime is not what we expected from this Alabama offense, even in a first game of the season. And first games of the season are always usually tilted toward defenses. The offenses take a little longer for whatever reason during college football to, to sort of hit a groove. But we expect Alabama to hit the ground running, and they didn't. But what we did see uh, in the second half and when Alabama's offense really got humming was an offense that absolutely inherited the principles of the West Coast philosophy, which is is what Steve Sarkeesian runs. That's basically his core offensive philosophy is very much – West Coast based. And, and what that basically is, for those who are aware, it's very timing, rhythm throws. It's very quick throws. The quarterback's not going to be hanging on to the football very long. And if you noticed when you watched to a play, especially in contrast to last year, last year there was a lot of RPO. So when you noticed the ball came out quickly last year, it was because Alabama was running an RPO. Well, this year it was very timing. You didn't see Tua holding on to the ball a long time. There wasn't there weren't, there weren't even a ton of deep shots taken down the field. Two or three. Uh, I remember the one in the first uh, the first quarter down the right hash. 
Uh, he, he basically missed Jerry Judy. He threw him on the outside. Judy was looking for the football on the inside. But other than that, it was they worked West Coast throws, which are very short routes, very um, you know sort of sit down routes. And it's it's when you see that it, I thought Tua handled it really well. First of all, it, when you run that, you, it, it helps your offensive line. You're not asking your offensive line to hold blocks for a long time. You're not having to ask your offensive lineman to hold a block to allow a receiver to get 40 yards downfield. That's not the routes they were running. What we saw was very quick throws and very timing throws. And what you saw was that Tua thrived in that. Did you notice that the drives were longer on Saturday than they were last year? There weren't these you know, three-play drives. It was seven, eight, nine-play drives. It was methodical. It was basically they cut – duped to death with paper cuts, just slice, 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 and they work their way down the field and touchdown. That might be what Alabama's offense looks like this year. That's not to say that they don't have the big play potential. I think when anytime you have Jerry Judy or Jalen Waddle or Henry Ruggs, you've got big play potential. But what they were doing, they were working the field. And what it showed to me is what I already believed in that Alabama's wide receivers can't be covered. Um, not when two is on time, not when he has pass protection. Um, they're going to cut you to death. And that's, we saw a lot of that. I I also saw from Tua, again, what we saw last year is that he spread the ball out. Nine different receivers caught passes from Tua over the weekend. But they also, did you notice, they got the ball to Jerry Judy. There was a very Lane Kiffin-esque um, ability from Steve Sarkeesian to get the ball to his best player. And we saw that from Lane Kiffin in 2014, the first year that Lane Kiffin was at Alabama, 2014. What do you remember about that year? I remember Amari Cooper caught 1,700 yards worth of passes. I mean, that's they got the ball to their best player. That's what I think Steve Sarkeesian did because uh, Jerry Judy caught the ball 10 times. 10 times 137 yards, one touchdown. They're going to get the ball to their best players. Thing is with Alabama, they got a bunch of best players. They got a bunch of best players, and that's why it goes back to, I don't know that you can cover this wide receiving core. Uh, Tua had a very efficient day. He was 26 of 31, 336 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. And by the way, still didn't play in the fourth quarter. Still didn't play. Had a scoreless first quarter but then was so efficient in the second and third, no need to play him in the fourth. So very much in some ways like what we saw last year. He did his work. He got out of the game. He put up huge numbers. Four touchdowns. That's the seventh time in his career at Alabama that he's thrown at least four touchdowns. I believe it's the seventh time in his career he's gone over 300 yards passing. That's the most in Alabama program history. He just continues to be a surgeon as the starting quarterback. Can't say enough about what he did. And, and and he did also some things that I was I was on the watch out for. I was on the lookout for this year. Um, there were times the offensive line was beat. I thought he moved around in the pocket really well. I thought he bought time with his feet, even when pass protection wasn't the best. I think there were two times where he scrambled and was able to pick up a couple of first downs doing that. 
One time he got out of bounds. One time he he probably should have slid, but he took a tackle. I think uh, Nick Saban will be working with him on that. But what I also saw and what I was watching out for is I didn't see the hero ball. I didn't see him holding on to the ball, waiting to make every throw, uh, unwilling to concede that some plays you just got to throw away. I didn't see that from him. Uh, he made very quick decisions. When it wasn't there, he went to the next read and the next read. And if it wasn't there, he made a decision, either got rid of the football or took off. There was no hero ball from Tua. I think that's big progress because that's where Tua got hurt last year. Uh, he, he got hurt in, in various games by doing that. And I'm not talking about hurting his team. I'm talking about physically got hurt. He opened himself up, himself up to more hits simply by waiting for something to come open. Sometimes you just got to get rid of it. You got to have that clock in your head. And so I think in that regard, it was a success. I know it wasn't pretty. Uh, I know that first quarter wasn't what anyone thought was going to happen. But at the end of the day, it's 42 to 3. For those who care about that sort of thing, you covered. (laughs) So you cashed. So best of both worlds. And you got out of that game healthy. Now, Emil Ikior... Did get his knee banged up a little bit, Nick Saban said during today's press conference. It's a knee situation, something that he's dealt with in camp before. You know, in worst case scenario, he'll be out a couple weeks and then he'll come back. And we'll get to that offensive line um, now because I thought the offensive line didn't play all that well. And but let me give a disclaimer I, I don't know on every play what the call was for an offensive lineman. I think that's where people get in trouble judging offensive linemen when you don't know what they were tasked with doing. But there are some things you can just look at it and say, okay, I don't need to know the line call. This guy got beat, right? Like if a, if a left tackle's out and he just gets beat by a guy, I don't need to know what the left tackle was tasked with doing there. He got beat. There were a couple of that. I thought, um, Push in the run game is still an issue. And to some extent, Nick Saban said they expected that from Duke. He thought with Duke's twist and their stunts that they would create some negative plays against Alabama, and they did. He also said, Nick Saban, that is, that they, because they gambled so much that they would they would hit a couple runs on them. They did. Jerome Ford did score a 37-yard touchdown there in the fourth quarter. They, they caught him there on a good run. But I don't know if there was enough of that. And how I judge Alabama football is when it's third and one, Alabama used to be able to basically, hey, tell a team we're running the ball. And you know what? We're going to run it in this gap, and you're not going to be able to stop us, and we're going to get a first down. It's been a, it's been a minute since Alabama could do that. Because if you, you look at the numbers, and Alabama's run game is still really good. Um, not, and I'm not talking about just this one game. I'm talking about last year. Alabama's run game was great. Go look at the rushing numbers they put up last year. It was, it was great. It was awesome. Now, this particular game, I think when you just total the running backs carries, they averaged less than four yards a carry. That's not great. That's, that's subpar. And there were times when there was very short yardage situations and they needed to run the football that they didn't get any push. Uh, at the end of the, at the end of the first half, they had started with a uh, with Evan Neal there at left guard. They had they had subbed in Emil Ikior for Evan Neal um, at this point. And uh, you know, watching the game, Evan Neal didn't have any major breakdowns. He didn't look to be injured. I think they were just mixing and matching some line combinations to to get a feel for what are their best five going to be. So they bring in Emil Ikior at left guard. It's third and it's third and one on this particular drive. 
they've got an unbalanced line. So they have taken the left tackle, Alex Leatherwood, and put him on the right. So basically he's lined up right of the right tackle, Jedrick Wills. On the left side, you had tied in Miller Forstall and Emil Ikior. So clearly the play's going to the right. It's a run. They're going to run right. Well, the play got blown up basically before the running back got the ball because the defensive lineman split Emil Ikior, the left guard, and the center, Chris Owens. He had two guys blocking one guy, and he split them. And he's living in the backfield. It's a tackle for loss. The play never had a chance. Instead of the drive continuing, you got a punt. You can't have that happen. I don't. I, you can't have that happen. You especially can't have it happen against Duke because you're going to play a lot better defenses than Duke. So that's concerning to me. Another time it was short yardage. They basically went quarterback sneak, and I don't think that's what they want to do with their quarterback. But I, I think there are times they they don't have complete faith in that offensive line yet. I think that's something to watch going forward. Uh, something else I noticed about the offensive line, and I, and I briefly touched on it, and you guys may have seen it. They they're still mixing and matching, and they did it in the game. And I'm, you know, I, I know to some extent that you have to do that, but you would have hoped that you had that figured out during fall camp, that you could figure that out during your scrimmages. When you went good on good in your scrimmages, you could figure out which combination of offensive linemen you wanted, but they didn't. Today during Nick Saban's press conference, he was asked about that, and he said, "You know, it's not a, it's not, it's not unusual for us to do that. Um, well, yeah, it is, because I guarantee you, if you're playing, I don't know, if you're playing Georgia or Southern Cal or Florida State or uh, anybody other than Duke, you you probably have enough respect for your opponent where you're not mixing and matching offensive linemen. I think Nick Saban knew that he could get away with it against Duke. I think he knows he can get away with it this week against New Mexico State." I think he knows he can get away with it up until they go to College Station and, and play Texas A&M. So right now, that offensive line, we know you're now Deontay Brown. He's got three more games to serve a suspension. We know Emil Eker is probably going to be out at least two weeks. So I told you about they, they, they subbed out Evan Neal. They brought in Emil Eker. Uh, another thing I saw during the game and I, I, I don't have as clear a read on why this happened. Some people have told me that Alex Leatherwood got dinged and had to go into the medical tent. Um, but Nick Saban was asked about Alex Leatherwood's health, and he said he's fine. So I, I don't know why this happened. But at some point during the game, I look up, and at left tackle, there's Matt Womack. And I did not suspect that the team's backup left tackle would be Matt Womack. That's not to suggest – that Matt Wilmette can't play it. It's just not who I would have pegged as the team's backup left tackle. So let's go back and look at the starting lineup from, from left tackle to right tackle. Was Alex Leatherwood was at left tackle. Uh, Evan Neal started at left guard. Chris Owens was your center. Uh, at right guard was Landon Dickerson, right tackle with Jedrick Wills. Um, at some point, Emil Echior subbed in for Evan Neal at left guard. Uh, and at some point, Matt Womack subbed in for Alex Leatherwood at right tackle. We also saw Landon Dickerson taking some snaps at center for Chris Owens. So they're very much moving different guys around. And and maybe it's just because of what I talked about with this offensive line, a lack of a consistent push in the run game. It uh, it, It's not going to matter against most teams they play, just like it didn't matter last year against most teams they played. But it it shows itself in the red zone. It shows itself in short yardage situations and against good teams where every drive matters, that's going to show up. And Nick Saban would like to have an answer 
for that before it does show up. Uh, another thing that obviously we were watching very, very closely is the, the performance of the true freshman linebacker Shane Lee and Christian Harris. And if you haven't checked it out, I, I write a, a review of the game on Sunday. It's up at The Athletic right now. It usually publishes either Sunday night or sometime Monday morning. And I'm calling it Subtle's Thoughts. It's a play on my last name. You get it, Subtle Thoughts, haha. And basically what I do is I, I, I want to focus in on a couple points of the game, and I'll do a little bit of film analysis. So I'll cut up some film and make GIFs out of them, GIFs out of them. And when I did that, looking at Shane Lee and Christian Harris, one thing stood out to me. Um, they did their job. And you're saying to yourself, well, duh, they wouldn't be out there if they didn't. Well, here's what I mean by that. When I when I judge freshman linebackers, I'm not looking for them to jump off the screen at me. I'm not looking at them to make flash plays after flash plays. I'm looking for them to make the correct play. And I took a couple of plays in the first quarter uh, of Shane Lee and Christian Harris, and I wanted to to and I, I wanted it to be the first quarter because I wanted to see was the moment too big for them. This is their first career college start. Their adrenaline must have been going crazy. Um, they got a crowd in there for the first time. They're, they're hitting someone other than in, in a, a crimson or white jersey. So there were a lot, of, a lot of things that could have gotten them mentally out of their comfort zone. And I wanted to see when they were in that environment, how do they handle it? And they did their job. The, the plays that I highlighted, again, they're not splash plays. They're not things that are going to be on Sports Center, or They're not things that uh, an NFL scout's going to clip and say, look at this guy. What they what those plays highlight are the fact that these guys did their job. First play I highlighted, fourth and one. Duke is in the Alabama red zone. They're going for it. It's fourth and one, and they put uh, basically Shane Lee on an island. They they hi, they highlighted the run gap where it was his responsibility to make the tackle. And right before the snap, they fake a jet sweep. You know, a little eye candy for a middle linebacker. It's an opportunity for his eye discipline to go somewhere else, but it didn't. He didn't even look at the guy on the jet sweep. He stayed in his position. He came up in the hole and he made the tackle. No gain, Alabama football. Again, it wasn't a, it wasn't a phenomenal play. It was a very average play. But in that moment, he didn't fall for any of the trickeration. He kept his eye discipline. He stepped up in the hole and he made a tackle. He did his job. Another play I highlighted was Christian Harris. Christian Harris has got um, responsibility and pass coverage from a running back coming out of the backfield. It's a very quick hitting play. Uh, the quarterback takes the ball, looks over, and throws it to the running back in the flat. Christian Harris did not hesitate, knew that was his man in pass coverage. They basically read the play, recognized the play, drove on the ball, broke the play up. Not a not an outstanding play. Not a phenomenal play that you're going to see on any highlight reel. He did his job. And that's how I judge these guys. They did their job in a pressure environment for the first time. And I think that's a very good outing. I asked Nick Saban about those guys after the game, and he was pleased. He said they made a couple of mistakes. You know, a couple of mistakes to the layman fan who doesn't know the game plan probably wouldn't even notice. But they did their job. Very, very good first start for Shane Lee and Christian Harris and a good building block where they got a little confidence and they can build on that for the next week because things are going to start building now because every week they're going to add something different to the game plan. Every week there's a different opponent with a different offense to game plan for. And so 
the mountain gets a little steeper every week for these guys. So we'll continue to watch them and in their progression, but just a really good first start for them. I don't know. Last night was, uh, you know, this opening week of college football is really always super exciting, but it was really fun on a Sunday night to come home and have college football to watch because it was Jalen Hurts, guys. It was Oklahoma. It was Houston. It was Jalen Hurts versus Derek King and just this high-flying offenses on both sides of the ball. But mainly it was we got a chance to watch Jalen Hurts, and boy, he didn't disappoint. He accounted for six total touchdowns. It was the most ever yardage a first-time starter had as an Oklahoma quarterback. He had the stage to himself. And he just lit it up. And and people are falling all over themselves to praise Jalen Hurts today. And good for him. It was a phenomenal effort. And he, he, he showcased his running ability, which I was very curious on how Lincoln Riley would use him in that regard. I think everyone saw what a powerful runner he is, how different a runner he is than Baker Mayfield or Kyler Murray before him. And we did see some, some of how he progressed uh, as a passer. But... Where I'm going to say next, what I'm going to say next, and this is not much of a shock to those in a, those of us in Alabama who've watched him for three years, is he's not a different player. He's the same guy. I mean, the things that he did last night are the same things that we saw at Alabama, and people are going to look at the numbers and just go crazy. The same guy. He's just got the best mind in college football calling plays for him. He's the same guy. He's, he's still the same guy that left the pocket too early last night and ran. Now, that's not me hating on him. He made positive runs when he scrambled. But those weren't designed runs. Those were designed pass plays. And we saw that time and time again with Jalen at Alabama. His just uncomfortableness in the pocket. He could never be a guy that lived in the pocket and was comfortable there. He can make occasional plays from the pocket, but that's not, that's not where he feels most comfortable. And that was what we saw. This wasn't some new guy, and the, the the national media are just like fawning all over Jalen. I mean, his numbers are great, and it 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 just further shows to me that we are such a number society. If a position on a football field is uh, is easy for us to understand, it's it's positions that have numbers attached to them. It's why it's why defensive players, especially defensive linemen, don't get votes for the Heisman because those they're their value to a football team is not easily broken down. It's not easily digestible. I mean, Quentin Williams' value to Alabama last year, most of it didn't even show up on a box score. Didn't show up in the stats. Him him absolutely wrecking an offensive play a second after it starts, you don't get credit for that. There's no stat that you get for that, but it's just as important. But we can't, as sports writers and, and national media, we can't see that because we need numbers to tell us how good a football player is. That's why quarterbacks always always wins the Heisman. It's the easiest number. And you know what you know what college football writers really love? A quarterback that can throw and run. Man, if they can get stats in two different categories, woo, they will eat it up. And that's what you're going to get from Jalen Hurts this year because he's going to put up monster numbers. But he's the same guy we saw for three years at Alabama. He's the same player. Lincoln Riley didn't have a magic potion to give Jalen Hurts when he got to Oklahoma. He's the same guy. He's just not playing as good in defenses as he's played in the SEC. And he's got the best play caller and offensive mind in college football work to work with. That's that's the difference. And it's going to be really fascinating to watch people treat Jalen like all of a sudden he's a completely different player. 
He's not. His numbers are just different. He's not a different player. I watched him be uncomfortable in the pocket and have no pressure and leave the pocket early and not let a passing play develop and leave. He's the same guy. And that's not, that's not a negative thing because he won a lot of football games doing that for Alabama, by the way, an awful lot of football games and should have won a national championship doing that. So that's not me like saying me hating on Jalen. I love Jalen Hurts. I think he's a tremendous example of, of everything that's right with college football. But it's going to be nauseating to watch people just give Lincoln Riley this credit that he he completely transformed Jalen's game, and that's not what happened. He's the same guy, a really good guy still, but he's the same guy. Uh, and and you know you even started seeing that from national media last night. Skip Bayless is is tweeting out that Nick Saban might be second guessing himself and giving two of the job over Jalen. Just stop. It's a fun debate to have in a sports bar, but stop because I watch these guys. Two is a better quarterback. That doesn't mean Jalen's not a really, 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 really good quarterback. It just means two is better. I mean, I'm a good sports writer, but there are sports writers better than me. Like we we do the best with our God given abilities. We work as hard as we can, but we have limits. That doesn't mean we can't be good in our own right, but there's someone better than us. That's what I mean. Me, me saying Tua is better than Jalen is not me saying Jalen's not good. That's why Jalen had offers to go anywhere he wanted to go pretty much in the country when he left Alabama and he went to a blue blood like Oklahoma. He's good. He's really, really good. He's just not Tua. So I, I'm just not going to entertain that conversation because it's it's absurd. It's ridiculous. We saw it. We saw it with our own eyes. We saw Jalen struggle in key moments against great defenses. We saw Tua come off the bench in a national championship game and win it. So just appreciate both guys for what they are. And that's really, really good quarterbacks and really great college football players. And it's a pleasure to be able to watch both of them. And speaking of watch, I got to watch a lot of college football on Friday night. You know, on Saturdays, I'm at a game. I'm, you know, on the road or in Tuscaloosa somewhere, and I get to see exactly one college football game. Like this weekend. I get to watch Alabama and New Mexico State. I would much rather be watching Clemson and Texas A&M, which is going on at the exact same time. But I'm in a press box covering Alabama, which I'm happy to do. I'm really happy to do it. But if I was home, I could watch every game because I got an awesome setup. I don't know if you guys saw, I saw a tweet that I put out on, on Thursday or Friday last week, and it was basically just showing my TV setup. And it wasn't even like me flexing. It wasn't even me like saying, hey... Look at what I have. It was basically I did the you know the prayer hands emojis and I'm like, college football's back. Thank goodness. That was kind of the message I was trying to convey. But I think a lot of people took it as, man, look at your TV setup. It's it's pretty sweet. I mean, I, I got a a nice TV setup that allows me to watch six games at once if I wanted to. Um, basically, it's an 82 inch TV on the bottom and I got two 40s up top. I got three cable boxes. But I also have Apple TV, and with the Apple TV and the ESPN app, I can split that big 82-inch into as many as four games. So I, I could put four games on the 82-inch and then have a game each up on the top on the 40 inches, and boom, suddenly I'm watching six college football games, and I'm, I'm, I look like I got a lot of money, when in actuality, it's just uh, you know taking advantage of the technology that's out there that you guys probably already have, so... If you don't, uh, if you haven't seen it, you can follow it on my Twitter account and see it. It's uh, it's something we've got a lot of 
<laughs> got a lot of uh, interaction with with my uh, with my followers over the weekend. I promised you we was going to bring him in. You know him. You love him. He's John Hayes. You can follow him on Twitter at John Hayes on Air. And John, I know you had some thoughts about the SEC's opening weekend of college football. I certainly did. Always thanks for having me, Aaron. Uh, and by the way, that setup you have is is legit. And I don't think anybody's saying, "Oh man, look at him. He's flexing. He's bragging." I think we're all just like, "Man, that's how it's done." So, congratulations to you uh, for that. And you know, anytime you want to invite me over, um, for anytime, NFL man. Sunday, we'll have a big party up in the pumpkin patch. I'm there. Absolutely. Uh, but but you know my background uh, coming from the SEC network over here to the athletics. So I keep a close close eye on on the league. You know, all 14 schools, and, and, and clearly this opening weekend was a rough one. It, it was one of the, the worst opening weekends really in, in league history. The record's 8-4 and four. if you add that Georgia and Vanderbilt game. It goes up to 9-5, and five. and there's two different ways I kind of want to look at this weekend, Aaron, if, you, if you'd give me a second. And, and the first one is a micro view, and that is this weekend. And when you have a team like Tennessee losing to Georgia State at Neyland Stadium, I mean, truthfully, really, you can't start anywhere but there. That is, in my opinion, the worst loss in Tennessee program history. It's a second-year head coach. He's a guy that's, that comes from Alabama who had, had a ton of credentials and really a guy uh, that, that the Vol fan base was ready to rally around. And somehow, some way, Butch Jones wouldn't have even lost this football game, Aaron. So I, I just have to start there. And, I, and I'm looking at Tennessee and I'm, saying, and I'm saying to myself, man, the once powerful program in the SEC East, under head coach Phil Fulmer, that is a distant memory at this point. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Do you think Phil Fulmer, do you think he'll ever be the interim head coach? again at Tennessee. Do you think he'll ever pull a Barry Alvarez on us up at Wisconsin? I'm holding out hope. I I think we've got a chance to see him on the sidelines again. I absolutely think he is going to do it. And and in fact, I secretly think he wants it to happen. Uh, I think he wants to be viewed as the the savior. He was once viewed as that as Tennessee. He got unceremoniously dumped. He's never really forgotten that. I think there's a secret desire for for people to for him to be wanted again and for him to be viewed as a sort of savior. So I I I don't I don't only really think it will happen, I think he wants it to happen. Interesting. I'm glad to to know we're on the same page there because it'd be a fun story either way. Uh and and you know in this business we like that. Uh, Arkansas by the way was a was a W in the column. But should we really count a 20 to 13 win at home over Portland State as a win? <laughs> Like, that's Chad my Morris question. is just happy for every W he can compile. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Thank goodness. I mean, legitimately, thank goodness Arkansas beat Portland State or, or the weekend would have been even worse. Wyoming takes down Mizzou. Barry Odom, he's, he's trying to continue the legacy of, of Gary Pinkle. Uh, Pinkle, a great coach for Missouri, comes into the league and takes that program to the SEC championship game in back-to-back years. Texas A&M still hasn't been there. And obviously they're in a different neighborhood, different situation getting there to Atlanta from the SEC West. But but still, Mizzou comes in the league. They make a splash. Pinkle leaves. And Barry Odom can't beat Wyoming. 
And you look at that Missouri program, and they, and they lose their quarterback in Drew Locke. Kelly Bryant was supposed to be a big-time transfer from Clemson. Threw for over 400 yards, but can't get the W. Can't play enough defense. Barry Odom, a defensive coach who prides himself on line play, he can't go and keep Wyoming to less than 30 points on the road. Give me a break there. So, I mean, those three games are are absolutely brutal to me. I think South Carolina and North Carolina, that's a border war. It's played in Charlotte, North Carolina. I think if, if I'm going to rank all the losses, that's that's the best one just because of that rivalry situation against an ACC team that has a has a new coach bump right now. And, and of course, Ole Miss goes up the road uh, into the state of Tennessee and, and loses their rivalry game uh, to Memphis and Mike Norvell. Uh, he's done an incredible job, by the way, Mike Norvell at, at Memphis. But, you know, when Matt Luke, Aaron, when he brought in Rich Rodriguez – uh, Mike McIntyre, and he created this coaching staff, really, of three head coaches. I, I'd make an argument that Matt Luke is the, th- the third best head coach on that staff right now in Oxford. Uh, yeah, that's not even the, that controversial a statement. I agree with you. You don't, you don't think so, right? I mean, would no. you agree with that? Absolutely, I'd agree with that. So I, I, you look at the that from – and this weekend, week one, from a very micro perspective, and you say to yourself – is the SEC being propped up by three or four programs while the rest are just riding coattails? And that's when I want to get into the macro point of view because you know what this league prides itself on, Aaron, and it prides itself on national championships. And we are, every single year that goes by, every single day, every single game week that goes by, Aaron, that 2008 Florida team becomes a distant memory. That 2007 LSU team becomes a distant memory. I mean, the the Urban Meyer era at Florida and the Les Miles era at LSU, I mean, that feels like a different lifetime at this point. There's one state that has propped up this league, and it's the state of Alabama. The Crimson Tide and Nick Saban, uh, clearly the best program in college football. What they're doing right now is unprecedented, and I've got nothing but respect for, for Alabama and what they've been able to do in the SEC West. But within the last decade, there's only one other school that's been able to step up and win a national championship, and that's Auburn. Auburn got it done. And without that, within the last 10 years, the only school to win a a national championship coming out of the SEC would be the University of Alabama. So from the macro point of view, as time continues to roll on, and you can make the argument that you know, because of Alabama, uh, there hasn't been an opportunity for other teams to step up and, and get to the playoff or, or make the BCS national championship. And, and that's fair. And, you know, Alabama, one of their titles was against LSU and, and Georgia's in the playoff as well. So I think you can, you can t- look at LSU and you can look at Georgia and you can, you can make a case that there's four schools in the SEC that are, that are, that are elite. And you can't make that argument really in other, any other Power Five conference. So I, I don't want you to, to read me the wrong way. I mean, if you ask me right now, what is the best conference in college football? I tell you, it's the SEC. But that doesn't mean from top to bottom, the SEC is that much better than every other league. What it means is the cream of the crop, the Alabama Crimson Tide, the Auburn Tigers, the Georgia Bulldogs, and 
right now, I think LSU has a lot of proving to do, but I think this new era under Coach Orgeron is trending in the right direction. Other than that, the rest of the league is just as average as every other Power Five conference in, in America. There you go. John Hayes, some particularly strong words about the SEC. Um, and you can't really argue the bottom of the league did not perform well. That Tennessee loss uh, has put Jeremy Pruitt on some shaky ground. I know it was a Power Five game, but I think Will Muschamp is really going to start to be in danger here soon. He's got Alabama in two weeks. But the top oh, of the boy. league had a really good week. Alabama, uh, Georgia – obviously knocking off Vanderbilt LSU that revamped offense looked pretty good. That Auburn Oregon game was unbelievably physical. Uh, we'll see how much progress that Bo Nix can make. And obviously Texas A&M will really find out what they have coming up this weekend uh, when they travel over to uh, the, the second death Valley, as they call it over in Clemson, South Carolina. Uh, can I if ask you, want- you a question? Absolutely. Can I, can, I, can I ask you something here? Because it's funny that you brought this up as far as Tua and Jalen and the comparison there. Uh, and and it, it's a poll that I put on my Twitter feed. And I'm curious what you think. Would you rather have Tua running a Sarkeesian offense or Jalen running a, a Lincoln-Riley offense? Like, I agree with you 100% in listening to you talk about Tua and Jalen. I mean, you ha- you'd have to be crazy to say that Jalen Hurts is a better, better quarterback. We all know what Tua can do with that that left arm. It's ridiculous, okay? But and the offensive coordinator does play a role in this discussion. Like would you feel better if Tua was playing in a Lincoln Riley offense? Do you think he'd be better in that offense or worse? He'd be better. So I think he'd, that's, he'd have, that he'd have so many easy throws. I mean, Jalen Hurts had wide receivers running wide open last night. Absolutely did. No, he absolutely did. And and surprisingly, I mean, you know, there's 300 people have chimed in and the vast majority says they they would take Jalen in a Lincoln Riley office and, and and offense. And honestly, I think that speaks more to the play calling than the actual quarterback. Because we agree, both these quarterbacks are very good. And if push came to shove, we're both taken to him to be our guy. Are you concerned at all about Steve Sarkeesian? Because we know how it went the first time yes. around. Yeah, absolutely. You, I am. Yeah. Why? In fact, uh, it took him a couple series to realize that Duke was selling out against the run uh, on Saturday, and then he made the adjustment, but it was basically the first, first quarter had been wasted. And then afterwards, he uh, counted them up. He he called 20 passes on first downs. He became a little – he basically had to, to make them pay for being so aggressive against the run, but it, it took him a quarter. And, yeah, I absolutely have question marks still going with Steve Sarkeesian. When do we get answers? I mean, and that's the – that's my – biggest question about the team is is when it, when does Alabama have a crunch time situation where Steve Sarkeesian needs to open up that playbook and and dial up a a great call and we continue to see it by Lincoln Riley you know we both uh, very much admire Lane Kiffin and maybe I, I think I'd rather have Lane Kiffin call in plays for Tua oh, Tungabello at this point in yeah. his career Tua with Lane Kiffin would be pornography it would be porn. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it would just be me sitting back, just you know, <laughs> admiring just unbelievable offensive football. I think Kiffin took a took a backup running back and made him the school's all time or the single season passing leader. I can't imagine what he would do with talent like Tua. It would Ridiculous. be criminal. So I mean, as, as I'm sitting here, Aaron, and uh, you and I are going to be watching this Alabama team closely, and clearly the strengths very much outweigh the weaknesses, but. 
while we are going to have the microscope on this program, I think Steve Sarkeesian is a very interesting story for us to follow, to see how he really matures and this playbook can reflect uh, maybe growth in that area. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's something I will definitely be following throughout the season. Uh, you can always listen to me Monday through Friday on WJOX 94.5 here in Birmingham from 10 to 2. And before I go, I did want to point out that we have another SEC podcast on The Athletic. This podcast may require tissues to listen to because it's our Tennessee volunteer show, Pod for Life, hosted by David Ubbin and Joe Rexrod. Yeah, those poor guys had to do a podcast after Saturday's game. And that wasn't very pretty, but David and Joe make revisiting the game bearable with their insight and knowledge. Take a listen to Pod for Life twice a week and click the follow button on the Athletics website or app for show notifications when new episodes release. You can also follow myself, Aaron Suttles, and John Hayes on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Aaron Suttles. He is there at John Hayes on air. Again, our episodes air every Monday and Friday with our Monday edition being free for everyone to listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And remember, please do me the kindness, download the podcast, rate the podcast, and subscribe to the show. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks so much for listening to another edition of Second and 26. Second and 26.